welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. It's hard to believe that next week we will wrap up the final episode of the year and get ready to embark on our fifth year coming to you live every Monday on Adrenaline Radio. Uh, year five starts in January. So, and, and Engineer Pam is nodding her head, nodding her head inside. So I know she's looking forward to it, as am I. But for right now, welcome. This is Behind the Lens. I am Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And every week we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the filmmakers in in front of and particularly behind the camera who craft television, film, music, even books on some occasions. Uh, we've had some literary guests with us as well. So <clears throat> uh, you can find my reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7. But again, every Monday, right here at Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And because our station owner, Nick Federoff, likes to play with toys when the equipment is working, yes, you can even watch a Facebook live stream on the Facebook uh, page for AdrenalineRadio.com. So, last week, uh, we've got some wonderful guests this week. I'm very, very excited. Uh, An incredible filmmaker. He's got... An amazing history. Uh, Jeff Fry is going to join us at the quarter hour mark and talk about his directorial debut, written, directed, cinematographer, and producer. Um, it's called Krieg. It is an American foreign film. And what that means, it's produced, it's American produced, but it is a foreign film. It is in French and German, and it is set during World War II, and it's a very unique look inside the hearts and minds of those in battle. And we see it's 40 minutes long, uh, so it's considered, quote-unquote, a short. Uh, I personally would like to see this expanded even longer. It's a fascinating story, some very interesting characters, uh, and Jeff actually explores the perspectives of German SS officers, a soldier who doesn't believe in random murders that are being performed by the Third Reich as they search for a transmitter hidden with French, the French underground. We have individuals from the French underground, and we have a U.S. aviator shot down. A very interesting film, um, and it is. You're on the edge of your seat for a lot of this 40 minutes, just waiting to see what plays out. So Jeff will be joining us to talk about that. At the half-hour mark, we have documentarian Frances Cowsey is going to be joining us, talking about her latest documentary, The Long Shadow, which is the history of slavery and its impact on the United States. And Frances actually brings a very unique perspective because one of her relatives, she grew up in the South, born and bred. Her, her heritage is in the southern United States. And one of her relatives, what, I think a sixth uncle, remo- uh, six remo- times removed uncle, was one of the drafters of the section of the U.S. Constitution uh, that spoke about slavery. So Francis will be joining us at the half hour mark. But right now, last week, I gave you the whole buildup for Josie Rourke and 
as director of Mary Queen of Scots. And then Ethan Gold, Ethan Gold, brilliant composer for the Song of Sway Lake, called in extra early. And I could not miss out on the opportunity to bring Ethan on the show earlier. So we missed out on Josie Rourke. But we're going to pick that up, and I'm going to let you hear about that. Mary Queen of Scots is out now. It opened on Friday. And this truly is. It is sumptuous visually, historically, with its texture, with its context. And the performances by Saoirse Ronan as Mary Queen of Scots and Margot Robbie as Queen Elizabeth I are intense. They are nuanced. Um, It is a power struggle of the finest. Uh, on screen with performances, it's not often you get to see one performance as indelible and as powerful as that which each of these ladies brings to their respective roles, let alone two of them in the same film. So, without any further ado, why don't we get started with my exclusive interview with Josie Rourke, and we'll take it as far as we can go until... Jeff calls us to talk Creek. So here you go, Josie Rourke, Mary Queen of Scots. What a fascinating piece of history. Sumptuous in visual and historical texture, delivering a telling character study of these two women, elevated by strong performances by Roby and Ronan, glorious and epic. Wow. And Ronan's performance is superior to that of Catherine Hepburn in John Ford's 1936. Wow, John Ford's 1936, Murray, Scotland. Amazing, amazing. It's an amazing thing to say. She is, Catherine Hepburn was all fire and brimstone, yeah. but no sensitivity at yeah. all. And this is where Saoirse really yeah. gives texture yeah. to Mary, yeah. is because she had a heart. We saw the lighter notes. Yeah. Yeah. And what you very keenly do with your costume designer. Mm, amazing woman. The clean lines of all of Mary's costumes, mm. clean lines and the way the, the, the bodice is designed, mm. it's, all, it's a separate piece that comes up and yeah. across like a piece of armor yeah. sheltering her inside. Yeah. But the clean, unfettered line mm. speaks to her emotions. Mm. I mean, just... You couldn't have cast anyone better. Would you like to sit here and do my press for me today? <laughs> that would be great. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, she's amazing. I actually, um, so I'm very new to Los Angeles because um, I'm from the world of theatre, as you know. And um, I went to do the technical check on the movie for the AFI um, closing uh, premiere, I guess, a world premiere. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been in the Chinese theatre before. Oh, my. And I didn't realise how big the screen was. And I um, walked through the doors of the theatre, the auditorium, and came round the side and saw Saoirse's eyes in close-up. And, and actually, astonishingly, I, I chanced upon the biggest close-up on her, in the, and an extreme close-up on her in the movie, and I started to cry. Yeah. Um, not only because as a theatre director it's unbelievable to see something you've made on that scale, but also because... Really, when the film is that big, you can see in even greater detail and depth how extraordinary that performance mm-hmm. is. You know, it's yeah, unbelievable. I'm glad you mentioned her eyes because mm-hmm. one of the, the key, one of the pivotal scenes in that movie mm-hmm. that speaks to who Mary is mm-hmm. is the battle. She's in the horse, erect, perfect posture. She's a wonderful horsewoman, Sasha. Yes, yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know, looking down and there 
they're about to kill her brother, and she just yeah. And the editing there, mm, yeah. Chris edit Chris's editing going from these eyes to, to yeah. these eyes to these eyes, and, and going in with an ECU yeah, yeah, yeah. was just well. That that ECU is the ECU that I walked. That's in the one you walked in on. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I kind of when you said that, yeah, I figured that, that's that was probably yeah, the yeah. one because yeah. that shifts yeah. the entire yeah. film yeah. at that moment because that's her breaking point. Family, exactly. Oh, you're so right. Exactly. She forgives and she cares about family. And Sosha and I spoke about that a lot. You know, she really. You know, the first thing you see her do when she greets Murray, they do the kind of um, James Murray, the Earl of Murray, who plays her brother, is you know he hands over with the bit with the sword. He hands over. Scotland to her that he's been ruling in her absence and they do the incredibly formal handover and then she hugs him and says my brother you know had Mary on that day allowed Bothwell to slaughter Murray or even banished him had she banished Darnley to France not half a mile down the road Mm -hmm. the story of Mary Queen of Scots I think would have been very different different. yeah her compassion was part of her downfall that's exactly it and we really get to see that yeah and you know this is one of the and I've always been fascinated by Mary Queen of Scots so when John Guy found Mm. that letter almost a decade ago Elizabeth's letter that for me that rewrote her Mary's history yeah I, I, I entirely agree Tell you. He's he's a, you know he's so great John because he's such a forensic historian. He cares yeah. so passionately about detail. And one of the things I'm proudest of about this film is that you know he said to me, I think I must be the only um, the only person who's written a book in history to be entirely pleased with the movie that you made from it. Oh, that's, you know that's gigantic. That's I, gigantic. I think that's a true statement. Too. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a true statement, Josie. You know, how do you, coming out of the, and this film, it is very theatrical. Yes. Because of that period of time. The period of history is theatre, yeah. And, of course, Scotland in and of itself, which there again, you've got some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. John Matheson, one of my favorite cinematographers. But, you know, where she's riding on the horse and camera, you're going out the aerial, and it's getting wider, wider, and she's never flinching on the horse. But you see all the rocks, the hardness of Scotland. Yeah. And in that moment, you get the whole metaphor of Mary and Scotland. Yeah. Mary has the strength yeah. of these rocks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what I love about the kind of uh, the climax of the dialogue in that scene is that you know she streams up that mountain and and absolutely the sort of incredible um, harsh beauty of the Highlands, you know, rises up in front of you, and she feels on top of the world and confident that world is her world. Yeah. You know, and there is a journey that she goes on in the movie to embrace Scotland and understand what it is. And, yeah. you know, that's very much on the costumes as well. Thank you that we should talk about. Um, but what I love is that is that she streams up that mountain on that horse and then she proposes to him. Yeah. You know? It's incredible strength. Bad mistake. Yeah, no, don't, don't worry. <laughs> but, um, but uh, no, but there's, some, there's something really great about that. And, you know, on my first movie to do a helicopter shot, that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, this being your first one, you didn't pick anything easy to tackle no, here. go big or go home. That That's exactly what you did. Mm. So I'm curious, calling on your theatrical background, mm. how did you go about approaching the production of this, specifically with regard to your cinematography? Because 
Not, that's the first thing that's going to make or break a film like yes. this with the epic scope yeah. and the intimacy. Yeah. And what you and John put together, mm-hmm. you know, within Mary's bedchamber, the softness of the light, mm-hmm. handheld cameras, yeah. the 360 movement, yeah. as opposed to aerials and then, you know, static cam yeah. and static yeah. shots yeah. outside. Yeah. Really, you f- and then everything in England is pretty much a static shot. Yeah, and that's very much an aesthetic choice. Yes. So, so, so Scotland operates organically, it operates in curves, and England operates in a linear yeah. fashion. And you know, even when you see their two privy councils, their parliaments, you see actually there's this historic, historically the case. Well, as, as, as the case in the present, the Scottish Parliament is curved and the English Parliament yeah. is linear. So, you know, and and also that. Um, as a theatre director, we think a lot about the body and the body of the actor. So um, Margot uh, is actually incredibly two-dimensional in her presentation, and the yeah. camera feels that. She moves sort of in one field, mm-hmm. as it were. And, and so she's incredibly um, organic and asymmetrical and curved. Yeah. You know, she moves in these circles all the time. And we did a lot of work with this wonderful choreographer, Wayne McGregor, um, not only on the movement of the two queens, but also on how the women around Mary moved and flocked like birds. So mm-hmm. the organic world is very much present within all of that. And, you know, it was... So the first thing to say about it as a theatre director is it's just, like, the most extraordinary um, kind of uh, uh, bumper feeling of joy to be able to work on this scale. And I love the poetry of theatre, but the poetry of theatre is the poetry of metaphor and it's the poetry of inference and it's the poetry of language. So I have spent the past 15 years of my life trying to get access to look out into the middle distance, which in my theatre moment is only four rows back, and imagine a mountain. Now I can just put them on a mountain. And that is part part of our exclusive interview with direct Mary Queen of Scots director Josie Rourke and you'll be able to find more of that on behindthelensonline.net and some other places later this week so but right now I am very excited to welcome the fabulous Jeff Fry to Behind the Lens welcome Jeff wow thank you Debbie appreciate it it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here I love Um, your film Thank you. I just have to get that out there right away. Krieg is, this is something we don't normally see. Um, you don't take sides. You present the mindset and the heart of the Third Reich and specific individuals there, particularly in the SS units, of a U.S. aviator and of participants of of the French underground each has a different perspective coming into this war each has a different reason for doing what they do and you let that unfold you do not judge you don't make anyone the bad guy of course anybody watching is going to figure out there there's some definite bad things happening here and who's doing them um but you get a real understanding and that's something that with all the films that have been done about wars, particularly World War II, this is something we haven't seen. And I just think it is spectacular to watch unfold. Oh, thank you. Um, that, was, that was one of the major goals that we tried to achieve, um, was to, to get the, that, that point across that war, it, it is war. And there, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting some feedback. I, it's popping in my phone here. Uh, um, 
I think so. If you'll just you'll bear with me, I'll try and make my way through that. As long as you're not hearing it, it's fine. No, I, Pam, we're not getting any feedback in in the booth. No, so I think we're okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it, uh, it actually it's one of the things that all the actors uh, liked about the film was the fact that uh, uh, we didn't take sides. Um, we were presenting a different perspective and uh, everyone's different perspectives on the war and. And that really is the crux of what war is. Everybody has a different point of view, and they're all looking at it from their own sides. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that really came across. And something that you very artfully do in crafting this script is you bookend it. We get complete resolution for each of these characters here within 40 minutes. And I found that particularly amazing um, we don't have any loose ends as to all of the characters that we meet here. We actually get through your incredible use of things like pictures that soldiers hold near and dear in their hearts when they go into battle. Um, everything is tied up, and that furthers our understanding of the motivations of each one of the people involved. And the way you start the film, and then the way you end it, with this incredible shot that comes in on a photograph of a mother and daughter that we met at the beginning of the movie, that just tears your heart. So, I mean, how difficult was it for you in writing this script and then in visually designing it to bring that cohesiveness and that emotion to life? You know, the hardest thing about it was to keep it within the short film format. Um, you know, stories like this have a tendency to, you can drag them out, you know, all the scenes as big as you want, and uh, especially with the epic nature that we were trying to build it into the film. Um, but I found that in, in actually shooting it and allowing the scenes to breathe, it became longer than the story warranted. And mm -hmm. so what I really had to do was to start cutting back everything that was... Um, not moving the story forward so that I could get it into that 40-minute time frame. Because I believe, I think and a lot of, a lot of uh, directors also believe that um, a story should only be as long as it takes to tell mm -hmm. that story. You know, uh, you, can, you can make a story forever long, but that doesn't do justice to the, to the story itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... A key element to this is the authenticity with which you present the film from the underground radio of that time period, that day, vehicles, armory, um, uniforms. The authenticity is absolutely stunning, stunning. How, how difficult was it for you to put all these visual moving pieces together to create that to immerse us in this world of World War II? Well, um, when we started out, uh, I, I have an uh, associate producer, Ken Collins, and I had a lot of discussions about, about this. We weren't going to actually do a film, uh, a war film like this, unless we could be authentic. Mm -hmm. And it really uh, took about two years of research to do this this way and then to go out and and find the equipment, uh, the people who own the vehicles and the planes, and build relationships with them. Um, 
I, I mean, that is ex- excessively time-consuming and difficult, but mm-hmm. um, there were there were ways to actually reduce our costs. Um, a lot of it was uh, the, the costumes, for example. Um, I purchased a lot of that stuff on eBay. Wow. Uh, and they're often items, very authentic items. I just bid on them. And, you know, it takes, it takes time to do that, but I would purchase it and then hang on to it for the length of the time that it took me to do the, to do the film. Mm-hmm. And then I can sell it and get my money back so my cost was zero mm-hmm. or positive, or, you know, a positive uh, uh, income. Right. Because I made money on those items. They're authentic World War II items. Oh, my God. You know, as I'm watching... It just required seed money up you know, as I'm watching it and I'm looking at the uniforms and all, I couldn't help thinking back to uh, a teacher that I had in junior high school, Stephen uh, Nataro. He was an avid collector of World War II uniforms, particularly those of the Third Reich. And once a year, he would bring in a large portion to school for us to actually see. And I always, that was just so incredible. So as I'm watching the film, I immediately was transported back to when I actually got to touch and feel and see up close these very same uh, uniforms. So uh, that was one of the things that really impressed me was the lengths that you went to for this authenticity. Uh, yeah, yeah. So kudos to you. And, hey, if you made some money <laughs> reselling it on eBay, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Now, yeah, I, I remember going through a, an award ceremony at uh, one of the film festivals, and uh, the film had uh, received an award for best costume. And so, when I was accepting the awards, I just told everybody I bought them all on eBay. <laughs> and everybody thought you were joking. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! You know, something that is quite interesting here is that the film is in French and German with English subtitles. You don't speak French and German, do you? No. No. Uh, how how does that work when you're filming? Um, <laughs> it's it's called faith in your um, talent. Faith in your, I mean, and the talent meaning the uh, the actors. Um, we we had all worked together to design the dialogue for this film. Um, I mean, I had what I wanted it to say. And I, I had some previous translations done for me. Mm-hmm. and then, But what we did was we, we would get together in my living room and we'd sit around the actors in a particular scene and we'd discuss what the scene, the mood was supposed to be, what the scene was supposed to tell us, and what the dialogue currently said. And then we would basically mutate that into um, what it authentically would have been saying at that time period in the words that that would best get across the meaning or the mood of that scene. You know, there's like, uh, from my understanding, there's about 300,000 words in German, in the German language. And we have like, what, a a million and a half or something Mm -hmm. like that in English. So you have to be careful how you put your sentence structures together because the same words could mean multiple things. Mm -hmm. But it really, I, I was really relying on my actors um, to be accountable to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one actor would know what another actor was actually saying. Right. And they were there with me all the time. So that's how we managed to get our way through that without having a, a script supervisor that spoke German or French. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, because that's one of the things, because I grew up, both of my my grandparents were from Germany. My grandmother uh, came over from Bremen. My grandfather came from Goslar. And all of my father's relatives, they were all from Germany. So I know what that's like growing up, and you're sitting there at family gatherings, and everybody's talking German, and you might know the one key word, kinder, so you know you're getting talked about. Uh, but other <laughs> other than that, I you know I'd be lost. I would not know, and I wouldn't have known what was going on. So I can just imagine what this was like for you as a director. And that's very key that you have talent, you have actors that you can trust with that to be accountable. Well, the uh, the other thing, of course, that once, once everything was locked down, we had I had script and script I had in German in front of me. So. Um, as we were as we were filming, I, I certainly could look at the dialogue and see what uh, it, it was. You know where we were in mm-hmm. the scene, and uh, uh, and what exactly was being said. So, you know, there's there's ways of I, I guess policing what you're doing out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious. You shot this 35 millimeter, did you not? Yes, I did. I I love you for that. If for if if for no other reason with this film, I love the fact you shot on film. What was well, what was the <laughs> what was the reasoning behind shooting on film, and what film were, did you actually use? Uh, well, actually, I had gone to Panavision, and Panavision donated the equipment for this project. Oh. They, they were my sponsor, um, and we used the Panasar for the high speed work. We used an Aton. Yeah, I mean, Kodak's great for that, and 
I know I was just talking to Chase Irvin the other week about uh, Black Klansmen, and, uh, you know, they he shot on Kodak Vision 3, um, but he managed to scrounge up some Kodak Ektachrome for the beginning and one other sequence in the film. And I was like, oh, my God, somebody got Ektachrome, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, this would have... Ektachrome, Kodachrome, all of this stuff so hard to... I, but I, I could just imagine what this film would look like with ectochrome um, because there's so much you can do in the developing stage uh, that would make it even more period, you know, rich. And I'm glad you mentioned the white on white. That is always the bane of existence for cinematographers and DPs when, uh, you know, whenever you have snow and white and you're trying to distinguish between the two. And you, re- you, we really see that, and I can appreciate that as we have Captain Winter, uh, our main German uh, officer, as he's carrying the injured U.S. aviator uh, Collins down from uh, the mountain, and we start seeing less snow as we get down to the house in which uh, our French underground uh, participants are residing in. Um, so, I mean, it's really lovely to see how you work that, and you, we have the delineation, but nothing is striated and nothing is bleeding into one another. Uh, so, yeah, I think you did an amazing job with that, Jeff, an amazing job. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really important to keep that uh, tonal separation in, the, in those highlights, and um, especially with all the snow, and the fact that we were shooting a lot of this at dusk. Um, you know, if it, if we didn't shoot at dusk, we at least had to make it look like it was at dusk. Yeah. And uh, and and you know that that's a lot of manipulation with the film. Mm-hmm. Where did you shoot this? We shot this in California. Uh, just uh, most uh, the airplane sequences were shot at the Palm Springs Air Museum in the middle of the uh, desert out there at the air, at the airport. Um, in September, it was about 117 degrees. Everybody was wearing like um, five layers of clothing with their uniforms. And it, we were sitting at night and we were setting it all up during the daytime. So it was like 117 degrees during the day and about 100 degrees at night. Oh the guys were wearing this stuff. It was just incredibly hot out there. Um, and then the balance of it was uh, shot north of uh, 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 the Riverside area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were out in a little church camp called Lock Levin Christian Camp and Conference Center, uh, which was kind of our little base up in the mountains just south of Big Bear. Mm-hmm. And that... you know, we spent the, spent the bulk of the time there. Wow. You know, what is, why did you want to make this particular film? Why, what was it within you that you had to tell this story for your first film? Oh, um, well, um, first off, it, it, the film was really a byproduct of what, of the project that I wanted to do. I had been working with a number of friends and other filmmakers who I thought were extremely talented, but never really had the opportunity to uh, show off their work because of the type of jobs we were doing in the independent, you know, arena. And uh, so what I wanted to do was actually 
help all my friends and other filmmakers by coming up with a project that was ambitious that would show off their talents. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, I, I was hoping to serve other people by doing this project. And that became the theme uh, of, the, of the project itself, serving others. And uh, I think that the best way to reveal that was the story of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the way the Good Samaritan story always was, is you put the, you put the uh, likable face on your enemy. Yep. And you tell the story from that point of view. And in this case, we'd make the likable face um, the SS officer that everybody hates. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there isn't anybody in history that people hate more than the Nazis. Yep. And you put that likable face on that person, and you make, uh, hopefully, get people to see that that um, people, that, that you know, people, there's bad in everyone. I think that's a, that's not, there's bad in everyone, and yet there's also good. There can be good in everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's the message I wanted to get across. If we're going to talk about tolerance, it should be tolerance universally for all people. Right. Yeah. You know, you can't have good without bad. You can't have good within a person without some bad being in there so that they can use their free will to decide which way do they want to go, which, you know, do you want to listen to the angel on your shoulder or the devil on your shoulder? Um, I love it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that is, that's one of the key things that I really love with this story that you've told about each of these individuals, because we see the good and the bad within each of them and how each decides to the decisions that they make, how they use their free will. To make a decision, I mean, just such such a well done film, Jeff. Really well done. Thank you. I, I think that the the world would be a better place if we all used our free will to serve other people. You know. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time. I could keep talking to you about this film and about <laughs> the music and the casting and all of that. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Annie a jingle and have her set up another interview for us off air so that uh, I can do a full, uh, you know, a full feature piece on, on you and the film. Um, but, oh, that would be awesome. Uh, but Jeff, thank you so, so much. And Krieg, um, how, where can people see it? Uh, right now, the, uh, the, it's still on the film festival circuit. Mm-hmm. And the, the, next, uh, the next festival coming up is actually going to be Borrego Springs, locally anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, It'll be Borrego Springs, um, Saturday, January 19th. I think it's around uh, 1 o'clock in uh, Block G at their film festival. That will be the, uh, the, next, the next one that's available. And you have all this information on the film's web- website, don't you? Which is www.krieg-the-movie.com. Yes, it's there. Uh, you can just click on the events page and click on any one of the tabs, and uh, it'll take you to that particular film festival, and you know, and it'll give you the details because it, it jumps to their their website. Right. Well, fabulous. It's like a, a pass through link. Jeff, again, thank you so much. I hope that you will come back on the show as well. I would love to oh, have you back. Oh my God, I would love to have you on again. So after the first of the year, we'll get you back on the show. Maybe time it to uh, the nineteenth. Um, that fe- sounds great. And the festival. So I will. I'll talk to Annie about all of that. And uh, 
Thank you again, Jeff Fry, and I will talk to you soon. Okay, we appreciate the opportunity and the uh, privilege of being on your show today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye. And put it on your radars, people, Krieg. And now we're jumping from World War II to the history of slavery in the United States with the remarkable documentarian Francis Causey. Francis, hello. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my God. I got what a fascinating history you have and to bring that to the screen with the long shadow. Um, great way to interest people in a subject and in a documentary. You put your own personal history and yourself out there. And this is an interesting story for a Southern woman with Southern roots to tell about how slavery has shaped us and this country and how your distant relative, Edmund Pendleton, was a big part of that. What what made you want, yeah, it, what made you want to tell this story? My mother grew up in Columbus, Georgia, going back generations. Sure. I've got uh, you know on her, on my maternal side, it's it's down south in Georgia, and I've heard stories and I've seen things over the years, and I know the philosophies that still permeate many of my relatives. Uh, so I'm re- I'm curious, what led you to want to tell this story? and to bring your own personal family history into the mix? Sure. It's a, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted answer, but I'll try to just drill it down for you. Um, it was a story that I had to make. Um, I, you know, I, I cut my teeth in journalism with CNN, and um, I've been fortunate to make a lot of films um, uh, that, that touched on this issue of anti-black racism in the U.S. and um, but I decided, uh, along with my producing partner who also is from the South, that we had to tell this hidden history about slavery in our country and how that history has so connected the dots to the strife and the you know, terrible consequences we're having uh, with race relations today, whether it's just, you know, drastic inequality or disproportionate police brutality. I mean, Ferguson, the Ferguson riots really catalyzed me to try and understand the story more. And so I started the research and, you know, I had known like many families, yours included, um, that, that my family had both sides had owned slaves. And it was actually quite a bit historically written about uh, my sixth uncle, who was actually the revolutionary governor of Virginia from 1775 up until July 4th, 1776. And he essentially um, codified slavery, if you will, in the new United States um, through some um, through a line that he wrote in the Virginia Declaration of Rights and basically signaled in coded language to the other slave owners that, you know, not only was slavery going to survive, it was going to remain the cornerstone of the, Amer- of the, of the new American economy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was your uncle, it was Edmund Pendleton, who came up with the, the, the verbiage, three-fifths of a person compromise. And that really set up a whole power, 
you know, that, that set up a power struggle. Right. You know, for... Right, so what happens, right, is that... What happens is that, that because we did not end slavery at our founding, um, what it did is it set up the South to have huge political disproportionate power than the South, which is indicated, of course, in the the compromise over the three-fifths compromise. Mm -hmm. Of course, slaves couldn't vote, but there were many more slaves in the South than in the North. And so the South would, you know, uh, each slave would be counted as three-fifths of a vote, not a person, because slaves were not even considered human, much less have the ability to vote. So, so what we set up in the film and what you see in the film is, is how this disproportionate political power of the organized South, which is, of course, organized around racial superiority, mm-hmm. white superiority over black, gets embedded into our laws and our culture and our institutions and how we think about ourselves and our politics and you just about name it. Uh, and those artifacts or artifacts of that reality mm-hmm. are still very much at play in our society when you look at things like access to the American dream or how that was denied systemically to African Americans over the course of our history. For instance, a lot of people don't know that the South forbade FDR, including the two prime vocation, black vocations of the era, uh, domestic service and sharecropping to be part of the social security program. And so, uh, you know, home ownership was denied until the Fair Housing Act, you know, home ownership in prosperous white areas was denied blacks until the until 1960, the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. And so what you see, I think, in, in the roots of the Ferguson um, riots, or you see this quagmire, you see this all coming to a, a boil, and, and, the, and, and the arrest of Michael Brown is the flint that really touches off the firestorm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you take us through slavery and its impact and how America has become what it is uh, through Wall Street, insurance companies. Right. I mean, connecting these dots, mm-hmm. how long was this research project and when did your through line for the documentary begin to take shape? Did you wait until after right, it, yeah. after you had done all the research or was the through line taking shape as you find one dot and then it takes you to another dot? So I'm curious about your process with this because of the, I mean, this is vast. This, this is not an easy research task. Right. Well, Hey, thank you so much for, thank you so much for recognizing it. Um, um, you know, as filmmakers, we try to distill down, you know, difficult so- subjects, or at least I as a filmmaker like to distill down difficult subjects into something more easily understood. And I, I had read about 30 books um, um, before, honestly, the, the, the central concept of the film, which is that how much power the organized political South yielded from really the early 1600s all the way up through the last midterm election, um, and, you know, in terms of voter fraud, perhaps, and some other stuff that took place. And so um, the aha moment, I think, came um, with, with uh, 
a gentleman who's in the film, his name is John Powell, and he is director of the Haas Institute um, for Equality and Fairness. And I had an interview, I read, a, I read a paper from him where he spoke about the slave patrols and, and how the, the elite, my uncle included, how the elite really meant to divide and conquer. They really meant to divide uh, poor whites from blacks. And the message they wanted to send to the poor whites was that, and, and for many, many years, decades, black and white indentured servants were intermarrying. They were much more equal than even today, as Mr. Powell points out in a lot of his writings. But so, so this divide and conquer, they, the elite were, were capturing the, a larger share of the economic pie in early America, and the poor whites were kind of getting fed up with it. And so they kind of came up with this strategy to divide and conquer. And then we see the creation of the white slave patrols to track down the fugitive slaves. We see the, um, you know, the white elite, the founding fathers, telling, you know, telling the the overseers, the white overseers, the poor whites, that no matter how downtrodden you are, you will be, you will always be better than a black-skinned person in America. Mm-hmm. And so I think we start to see the artifacts of that present in places like Charlottesville and some of these terrible headlines that, that as Americans, we, we all kind of struggle to understand. And I think the film really explains the today you know, what's going on today mm-hmm. and the headlines from today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you really bring everything, you know, to the present day. And I'm curious because you have some incredible interview excerpts on here with some really interesting people. How did you go about finding not only your interview subjects, but then once you had them and the interviews done, getting into the editing room? so that we don't just have a bunch mm-hmm. of talking heads on the screen, which is the quickest way to lose any audience. But then you intersperse right. everything with some incredible archival photos. Well, thank you. And I, I really credit I really credit Maureen Gosling, um, the co-creator and editor. Um, you know, she cut such a beautiful film and the score by... Um, Jay, you know, Jacob, um, Miss Rock Bloomfield, but, you know, as you know, as a film expert, you know, just weaving all of these elements together, um, takes, uh, you know, such skill, particularly for history, you know, mm-hmm. I was very worried about making a film about history for the reasons that you talk about. You do really rely upon the experts who've written these incredible books like Gerald Horn who wrote so much about the, the African experience pre-Revolutionary War. So you, you really do have to find these images. Jed Rice and Ned Pollock, part of our, you know, our post-production team, and I, we, we found all these incredible images. And Maureen really just beautifully captured, um, you know, and, and everything from the Foley, you know, the sound effects. There's, there's one... There's one image in the film you might recall where where a escaped slave is being chased down by a slave patrol and 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 their dogs that are coming after yes. him. Of course, it's an etching, you know, from the 1800s, yeah. and you you know you hear the slight you hear the slight 
faint um, foley sound effect of a dog barking, you know, chasing down this thing. And so she really brought the whole creative team for the film, uh, Roy Miles with his graphic work, the whole team really brought together and, and really made history alive again. This hidden history um, made it come alive again. And I'm, I'm so proud of the whole team. And, and thank you so much for recognizing that. You know, and how did you determine um, your interview subjects? How did you track them? Because you've got a lot of people talking in this film, which gives us, a, you know, a lot of, you know, great perspectives and insight from each of their um, areas of expertise, so to speak. So I'm curious sure. how you found sure. them and how you called down your list, because something tells me you probably talked to even more people than who you have in the film. Sure. Again, another great question. Um, it, it, it's so neat being on a filmmaking, you know, filmmakers show. Um, you know, it, it, it you know it took five years to make the film, and and I, you know, as I said, I cut my teeth in journalism, and you know, when I walked in the door at CNN when I worked there, I'd have to tell a story by a two minute story by the end of the day, and I'd have to spend the first couple of hours researching it. Then I'd have to go out and shoot my elements for the film. Then I'd have to come back and write it, then edit it, and it'd be on air by 5 o'clock in the day. So at the end of the day, so five hours, I mean, or five years, um, <laughs> seems like an eternity. But it's, you know, it's kind of a skill, I guess, I just honed at CNN. And and, it, and it's a lot of, of, of cutting and pasting and and figuring out the thesis as you go along, and I would, and we feature three particularly um, tragic yet hopeful yet inspiring stories in the film. Um, two of which were really designed to show to go really against the majority of the history that Americans learn about slavery and Jim Crow and its impacts that we hear in our textbooks, which is really kind of perfunctory. I particularly tell two stories, the story of the black Canadian pioneers who fled Northern California in the 1850s to Canada mm -hmm. at the request of the first governor of British Columbia who identified as black. They were all afraid of being um, recaptured. It, they were freed slaves by right, by legal right, but it took nothing more than an affidavit from a white person to re-enslave them. And so California was in danger of becoming a slave state. So they fled to British Columbia. And, and so I told that story as just an, the antithesis of what I had grown up with in the South, and perhaps what your mother had grown up with in the South, about these all these stories about how you know, African-Americans were lazy and had to be taken care of, and all of these terrible myths mm -hmm. um, and stereotypes that I grew up with. So I wanted to show um, that there were many, many stories in America that we had never heard about um, that were just, you know, that really countered the outright lies we had kind of been told as children. The other, of course, being that you'll be familiar with is the story of the Nominee Hall slave descendants and and the the, the real story behind that and what kept I just ran across it through many many days of research I ran across a book uh, that a woman had written um, about these um, about the Canadian pioneers and then that led me to Nominee Hall and and I I studied the the descendants 
of these slaves that had been freed in 1792, um, the largest manumission or freeing of slaves uh, that would come only next to the, in the Emancipation Proclamation. So that story and how they had such a head start in the United States being the descendants of freed slaves, I told that story as well, you know, and, and you know, you, you I, the way that I do is I, I, the way I make films, my process is, is I decide who I want to interview and I, and I do a paper edit and I, you know, and I did that for really years almost. Mm-hmm. And then I, I set about and went out and interviewed these folks. And, um, and then of course we tell the story that the terrible story of the racially motivated mass shooting in Mississippi, a reflection of our failure to really as a nation deal with these racialized conflicts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something very interesting is you put this, this documentary you pretty much had in the can before Donald Trump was elected president. Right. Yes, yes. And I, you know, the film, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to, I mean, that I find the timing and the fact that it's now coming out. And after everything that we have seen unfolding over the past year and a half and the rhetoric and the vitriol that is just like it's become commonplace, the timeliness of this documentary. It's, you know, it's like the stars seem to be aligning with so many, so many works like this of late, you know, telling us all we need to open our eyes and see exactly what's going on. And we need to. You've got to understand the past to know where we are now and where we're going in the future. And, you know, that's a, that's exactly right. You know, so I'm I'm, I'm I mean, I you, I'm curious. No, I, interesting. I mean, I made the film um, knowing what was going on behind the scenes politically. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to specifically address. I didn't want to lose half the half the country, you know, the right. film is for everybody. It's just not for one on particular side of the aisle. Um, but the film exactly explains where we are. It's very objective in your presentation. It's, these are the facts. This is here. This happened here. This happened here. This happened here. Because this happened, then this happened. You've got everything. Right. It's a whole, you know, it, it, just like the barrel full of monkeys game, you know, each 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 piece is hooked onto the next one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I love that. And yeah, and so you know, I I, I hope your listeners will go to go to our website um, at thelongshadowfilm.com, thelongshadowfilm.com to learn more about the the film. We have a free resource study guide. Mm-hmm. Um, a 25-page study guide, uh, and the film just had a theatrical run and will be hopefully on Netflix and television and um, will be releasing probably in early March um, video on demand, and the film will be out there and available um, for your listeners. I, I mean, it's a film that every American should see, if for no other reason to have a better understanding of the world in which we're living in right now. And, you know, plus the, the education that you impart is fabulous. It's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> you know, now, because you, did, you. because you did work at CNN, you know, I just want to go on the record here and say, 
people that work at CNN and the work that they have done, it is not fake news. It is accurate. And this documentary speaks to your skills as a journalist with the facts that you have put together. Well, I, I, I really can't. It's very rewarding coming from, from you, and I so appreciate it. You know, now, now that you have made this documentary, Francis, I'm curious, what did you personally take away from this? How did the making of this documentary personally affect you and your own outlook on the world now? Sure. Well, it certainly, it certainly made me, it certainly made me, um, I'm, I apologize, I'm getting some feedback, so I hope I'm not talking over your question. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, okay, good. It, you know, it certainly made me aware. I mean, as aware as I was, and I, I it certainly made me aware of my own implied or unconscious bias mm-hmm. that I, that I myself held. But it also made me see, I can't tell you how many people, we've done dozens and dozens of screenings, and I can't tell you how many people, black or white, that come up to me and say, I now have a film that I can refer someone to. And this is particularly among um, African Americans. They're like, they love the film because they're like, finally, there's one place where people can go, particularly white people can go, to understand the black experience of slavery and Jim Crow and its impact. Mm-hmm. And it's, of course, that story was for me to tell as, as a, at, you know, from the standpoint of what white people did to impose those burdens on African Americans. But people are hungry for a narrative to discuss, you know, our problems with regards to anti-black racism. There are so many people that feel like the film is giving them an opening or a dialogue to discuss these very, very tough issues that we have never dealt with. And I hope one day that it'll spark, you know, some type of national commission on slavery and Jim Crow so that we can study it as a society mm-hmm. and make amends where I think we should. Mm. My God. Francis, you amaze me. Your work amazes me. Um, but this documentary, it truly is something that all Americans need to see. You know, unfortunately, we are actually out of time today. I could talk to you. I could talk to you oh. longer about this, about this doc. Um, I hope you will come back on the show again. Oh, it would, it would be my distinct pleasure to do so. And yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. You know, I want to know, what are you working on now? Now that you have finished The Long Shadow, <laughs> what are you working on now? Yeah. yeah, I'm working on a film that will be released in 2019 called um, Is Your Story Making You Sick? Which is about this idea that we actually carry our past around with us in our body, and we were not really aware of it, and it stresses us out and makes us sick. And so we, we had a remarkable uh, eight individuals um, that we took through this process of reacquainting them with their past and and working working through their own stories. So we're really excited about that for 2019. But the long shadow will continue to be out there 
for the next two to three years. And so I, I, I hope I'll hear from some of your viewers. And please invite me back. I'd love to be back on your show. Oh, I want to have you will be back since it's my show and I schedule who I want. So (laughs) (laughs) Francis. Great. Okay. Well, I'm in. Thank you so, so much. This has been a joy and I will talk to you again soon. Take good care. Thanks, Francis. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Francis Cowsey, writer, director of the long shadow. So we went from, what, 16th century, 17th century Scotland to World War II and Nazi Germany to the South and slavery. Okay, I've got my entire family tree covered today in this episode. Not what I was trying to do, but as I sit here now, um, I realize, yes, I did. Um, That is all the time we have today. Check out The Long Shadow. Be on the lookout for Krieg. Mary Queen of Scots in theaters now. Also, take a look at Bird Box, Sandra Bullock's new film. It just opened. It's going wider in the coming weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about Mary Poppins because the embargo will finally be lifted. And we're going to have the producer of Thunder Road joining us and a few other surprises. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 